Hi there. You're listening to Development Unplugged, hosted by the Canadian Council for International Cooperation. Here we are providing a platform for cutting-edge thinking and debate on global issues and international cooperation. Whether you're a social sciences major, a journalist in pursuit of answers, a program officer brainstorming on that next project, or the CEO of a nonprofit, this is your source for all things international cooperation. I'm your host, Nick Moyer. Welcome to Development Unplugged. On this episode, we're going to be talking to three experts about gender lens investing. Um, we're on the second day of a great event uh, in Ottawa at the end of June, talking about um, innovative development finance and trying to get literacy up for so many in civil society so that we can engage in what are new tools um, available to our sector and so many elements to that, many, uh, many learnings that have been made here. One of the great things that we need to be talking about is how we can influence the tools that exist and not only just use them. And today we're going to be talking about gender lens investing with Joy Anderson from Criterion, Criterion. Institute, uh, Ryan Clark <laughs> from Global Affairs Canada, and uh, Jessica Villanueva from Meta. Jessica, perhaps you could introduce yourself. Thank you, Nick, for the invitation. So I'm Jessica Villanueva. I work for MIDA as Investment Technical Director. For those who don't know MIDA, MIDA is a Canadian and U.S. not-for-profit organization. And we have a long history of impact investing through our own risk capital fund and also working in collaboration with private equity and asset management firms and also with blended finance partnerships with donor governments and philanthropic foundations. MIDA also has a long-term and deep experience in women's economic empowerment, so working as uh, entrepreneurs, consumers, leaders, board members, etc. Also, MIDA is now currently developing our own gender lens investing fund, uh, for which we aim to raise at least 100 million from public and private sources. So we are happy to be here talking about gender lens investing. Wow. Welcome. <laughs> um, so um, my name is Joy Anderson. I'm now completely distracted by the $100 million <laughs> fund idea. And um, so uh, while my primary identity is at Criterion Institute. I am also a big fan of MEDA, so excited oh, to hear more you. about what you're doing. Uh, so I lead uh, Criterion Institute, which is a think tank based in the United States, but we operate all over the world. And we're really looking at shifting who sees themselves as able to use finance as a tool for social change. So it's an honor to be here at this conference because civil society organizations for us are a very core audience um, that we think making sure that their knowledge, uh, their data, their experience, their ability to engage social change is absolutely critical to be able to bring it in to make gender lens investing live out its potential. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Ryan Clark. Um, I work at Global Affairs Canada in the Global Issues and Development Branch. Um, first off, just thanks, uh, Nick, and to CCIC for the invitation. Uh, we've been um, happy to be talking about this event for a while and really, really excited to see it, uh, it playing out. Really happy to be here. Great to meet Jessica for the first time. Obviously, know a lot about Meta and really, I too, am looking forward to hearing more about um, what you do with Meta. Um, enjoy a criterion. We have, a, we have a, a, um, not a long, but a very, very deep relationship with over the last um, six, eight months. Um, Joy and uh, her team at Criterion have uh, done a tremendous amount to influence what we're doing at Global Affairs and, and I myself uh, personally. Um, I'm, I'm, 
I'm helping to set up the new international assistance innovation um, and sovereign loan programs were announced in the, the federal budget last year. Um, over the last uh, six months or so, I've been establishing um, what we're calling our Impact and Innovative Finance Bureau within um, the Global Issues and, uh, and Development Branch under the leadership of, of Chris McLennan. And um, I'm here today um, to, to talk a little bit about um, how gender lens investing will be applied within these programs, um, and but more to, to listen and learn because we are we are a startup within government and we have we're like sponges right now. So there's lots of ideas out there and looking to apply as many of them as possible. There are um, a lot of terms in in innovative development finance that you know many in the sector of civil society are not <clears throat> are not that comfortable with. Um, gender lens investing is what we're talking about today and. You know, in theory, it sounds like it's gender in investment. You know, sounds fairly straightforward, I would think. But I want us to try to unpack what that means. So let me let me try, um, and then if depending on what you think of my my attempt, <laughs> I hope you'll jump in with your thoughts about what you think gender lens investing is. To me, I I think I understand that it's about bringing a gender analysis to investment, to the investment space. Um, but also that beyond that, it's it's to demonstrate how gender can impact investment decisions. And so bring that analysis to the table at every level of investment decisions that are made. That we could be very intentional and choose to actually have investments that choose to push a gender outcome, but that there might actually be other forms of this where you just actually look at getting gender analysis into um, existing investment decisions. Does that sort of resonate with you and any, like feel free to add to that. Yeah, um, I, I, it's very close to the definition that Criterion uses. So I, um, and 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 what I think is important about where you emphasize incorporating a gender analysis into investment decision making is uh, I think there's an, a conception that if we're talking about gender lens investing, one that we're only talking about women and we're talking about pointing money at women, right? That's the sort of general people translate gender into women and they translate women into women entrepreneurs as the thing that's investable. And I think the um, that makes the world too small really quickly. And um, it, it limits the experience of gender, which is really about power dynamics between the genders, um, between all genders. And it, it, it takes us into being about the identity of being a woman versus the experience of power dynamics and how that affects all sectors, all industries. So it doesn't have to be, oh, look, there's a woman, but rather patterns around gender influence everything in our world. There's no industry that's not affected by those patterns. And so I think making sure that that, that a lot of the work that Criterion's done over the last 10 years, we, we were one of the organizations that really helped found the field of gender lens investing. And our agenda has been to make sure the field stays big enough so that we're not an issue area subset of impact investing or innovative finance, mm -hmm. um, but rather a broader approach to really recognizing the importance of analyzing power within, uh, within finance. Thanks, Joy. And what about Amida? So at MIDA, uh, what we see is there are two different uh, ways to to uh, see the de this definition. One is outcomes um, generated or 
focus and the other is process oriented, which is more right. uh, what right. Criterion is, is using. So the first one is more related to enhancing the lives of women and girls, but at the same time producing a financial return. And the other way is integrating gender across all the process. So also the, the fine cycle, etc. Yeah, and I do. I do think I, I love pairing those two together, um, but they do have to be paired together. I mean, exactly as you said, because there is a tendency if you just focus on the outcomes definition, mm-hmm. then gender ends up in the appendix C of like the yes. ESG tick box. And sorry, the ESG. Oh, I'm so sorry. I just said no. Environmental, social, and governance. So the, the sort of the reporting mechanism of how did we do with our um, contribution, as opposed to at the front end of how are the decisions being made. But I think we have to do both because we also need to pay attention to unintended consequences. We need to pay attention to are we actually. Yep. Are we actually shifting gender equality? And that is the outcome that we're looking for. But still, on the front end, you're not going to get there just by putting some measurement at the end. This is exactly the way that um, we're trying to be looking at um, gender lens investing within these new programs, is looking at both process and outcomes. I think that if you, if you just focus on the outcomes, which, which is a, a very, very good thing to be doing, um, particularly when you're dealing with public funds, um, but it does, it, it, it limits you to working within existing systems and how those systems currently function. Whereas if you, if you tackle the process side mm-hmm. of, the, of the equation um, and explicitly say that that's part of the mandate of what you're trying to do in applying a gender lens, um, then what you're doing is, is, is really tra- attempting to transform the system. Um, yep. If you focus on the outcomes, you're just going to, you end up in this narrow space, as Joy described, um, and you're not really actually tackling the fundamental problems associated with, with, with investing. Can we unpack that a little bit? So applying gender lens sort of investing principles to the process. What, what is that? So, also, let me, just building, I think answering that and, and building on what Ryan said, I think translating it to how a, a sort of traditional gender framework that folks in civil society organizations might know is sort of the difference between transformation and accommodation. Mm-hmm. Right? So you're always looking at a, you know, a gender analysis is looking at this spectrum from transformation, from sort of accommodation to transformation. Um, and there's more steps on the on the that spectrum, but focusing on those two. So accommodation is basically saying let's take the existing system and create accommodations so that it works for more people. So that's things like if you're going to do an accelerator, make sure there's daycare for for women who might not have access to it otherwise. Um, and that's a good idea, right? It's not bad. It's certainly good to take the existing system and accommodate it for a broader set of, and that's a lot of the work that happens in inclusion. It's good inclusion principles. It's good inclusion principles. Transformation says accelerators, the the accelerators are are sort of the things that happen often in finance that are about growing businesses quickly to accelerate the growth of a business. Um, But in accelerators, that sort of assumption of here's how you grow a business and here's what's take, there are all kinds of assumptions built into that. There's bias. There's ways that privilege is exercised that isn't just we'll give you daycare. It's more how do we actually look at the underlying design of the system, as you said, um, Ryan, how do you actually change how the system works and so that it works for more people? Um, that's, that's That's when we start getting into gender equality outcomes versus 
we'll just make sure you have the thing that lets you participate in our system, but actually changing so that the system itself is designed in such a way that it works for all, not just a few. And often, sorry, and oftentimes those accommodations like end up being unsustainable, um, where the great ideas can come up with like, like the daycare example. Um, but that, that requires a, a subsidy in perpetuity and, and can turn to out to be like, that, yeah, who's yeah. going to pay for it? So if you're not tackling the system issue and you are just looking to find these very, 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 very good accommodations that, that oftentimes are very innovative and help to show the market and show the donor in our case that this can work. Um, like that, those are very, very good practices to undertake, but, um, but it's not, it, in often cases, it's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can, can I just build on that quickly? Because I think one of the places that people... One of the really interesting ways that civil society organizations can step into this space is donor organizations right now are learning about the tools of finance and all of the and in, in, in innovating within that, mm-hmm. right? So they're sort of expanding their own toolkits in terms of what's possible to do. The learning curve there often sounds and feels like we're just learning about finance. And so then there's lots of conversations about how finance works and we'll explain to you how this works. And that is um, uh, that is a really important part of the learning curve to sort of understand what is the logic of finance. But I think it's really important in this in that learning curve, to also say our job is not just to learn how this works and incorporate it in, but in incorporating it into good development practices to transform it. And I think we, so listening with a, interesting that you said that that's how it works. I wonder if I think it should work that way. And then respecting how it works right now and not blowing it up and saying, well, let's just give away all the money and, and capitalism tomorrow. But, but rather kind of how do you respect how it's working right now, learn the logic, and then pay attention to the ways that you could intervene to make it work for more. It's interesting because you're making a case for civil society to engage even before it understands fully the tools or feels that it can use them itself. That right from the design stage, there's... There's a perspective to provide in terms of inclusion and good design. Right. Um, Could I ask, maybe we could turn a little bit to how civil society can engage with this. What are some examples of how gender lenses investing has been harnessed? Um, Maybe we could start with you, Jessica. Sure. So Mida, based on the, the learnings from the different projects that we are implementing in, in the field, so Mida has found that in the gender lens investing field, there is ample room and potential for experimentation about innovative approaches, uh, for example. But yes, I will agree 100% with Joy, what you say yesterday, that we need to speak the language of finance. But not because to, I mean, it's not about the money, it's about how we are influencing, how we are changing this power of the, the decisions in these investors to really invest in what we think as civil society that is needed. Because we know the market, we know the context, we know the uh, beneficiaries, etc. So uh, I think it's, it's really key. In terms of how MIDA is doing this, uh, we have three different lines of action. So one is investing capital in women 
through our own risk capital fund, but also providing technical assistance. For example, we have this GEM, which, which is Gender Equality Mainstreaming Toolkit, that really is looking to include gender across all the processes. And at the same time that we are integrating gender, we are looking for business performance. So that is our second line of action. And the third one is creating these blended finance partnerships. So for example, we have a project in Myanmar where we are using some, what we call smart incentives to really target women-led businesses in that country, but working with donor funds and also investors. So really to achieve our result. Thank you. Joy, any thoughts that come to mind? Good examples you want to share? I would love to. Can I just ask a follow-up question back can. first? Um, can you dig in more into the smart incentives piece? Because um, I think what Mita does well is because of your long history of looking at um, gender in um, inclusive economies. Um, you really do both understand how economies work and, and and getting into that logic. So, can you give a couple examples of what what you've seen as smart incentives? Yeah. Sure. So, for example, in Nicaragua, we have a project, the name is uh, Technolinks Plus. We are implementing what we call e-voucher, which is a electronic discount to purchase technology. So what we see is that in the meetings where we are promoting this e-voucher, so it's mostly men that are attending to the meetings, right? So sometimes are the women producers that are in the back just listening. So what we are now trying to do with this e-voucher is to promote more inclusion for from these women. So we are including what we call a quote, an additional quote in these uh, e-vouchers. So now women really is uh, like sitting in the table and saying, I think this technology is good for my farm, so I'm going to purchase that technology, and they have these incentives to do that, mm. for mm. example. Another incentive that we are using is what we call the challenge grants, that we are working with uh, lead firms or SMEs that are leading the market, for example, in the case of technologies uh, again. So what we are doing is working with them in order to say, are you working with women? How you are targeting women to purchase your technology? So we are doing that with these challenge grants. Oh, cool. Very cool. Uh, I could also I could give an example from, from our work. Um, so I would say our since our mission is about engaging not just civil, I mean, NGOs, civil society organizations, gender experts, uh, we're basically taking all the people who don't see themselves as able to engage in systems of finance, and our core mission is about figuring out how they, how they come to the table. Um, but to be able to do that, you do have to also demonstrate possibilities. You have to show what's possible, because otherwise mm -hmm. people are like, I'm going to come to the table, and I don't know what I can do when I get there. So um, to be able to further this about two years ago, um, we launched a campaign to prove that you can use finance to address gender-based violence. Mm -hmm. um, and within that, we have a goal to uh, equip a thousand individuals and a hundred organizations to at the end of this campaign that they would be actively using finance as a tool for social change within their strategies. Um, so organizations whose focus is addressing gender-based violence. Um, and 
so the way we've approached this is um, to really start with a series of design sessions, read training programs, <laughs> somewhere between design and training where we bring together gender-based violence experts and work them through the logic of finance, mm -hmm. but then have them share in the process, well, what amazing data do you have? I mean, the gender-based violence has basically, the field of gender-based violence <coughs> has spent the last 10 years collecting data to prove that there's a problem and to sort of legitimize gender-based violence as a problem. Um, and that means there are these amazing data sets out there, uh, amazing in their sophistication and their depth and their ability to really look at a nuanced, very complicated issue, not amazing in what they actually demonstrate just to be. It's because it's, it's mind-numbing, right? Um, and sort of the extent of, of gender-based violence in the world. And so that sort of taking those data sets, so a concrete example is in one of our first trainings, um, the Women, Peace, and Security program at Georgetown University that has this amazing data set around women, peace, and security that looks at the relationship between um, political stability and gender-based violence in, in a really sophisticated way over many years. Well, okay, that's interesting. We were at the same time partnering with, with um, OPIC, who has a political risk insurance, right? So political risk insurance is a very uh, sophisticated financial tool that says if you're going into a country where you've got some experience, we've got some sense that like you, you, you don't want it to blow up because of some, well, literally blow up because of some political um, disruption, you don't want your investment mm -hmm. to blow up, and so you take out political risk insurance to kind of guarantee some part of, of your going into a, an economy that you see as risky. All right, well, gender-based violence correlates with political stability, but right now, the primary source of data around political government violence, or sorry, country-level violence comes from the World Bank. There is nothing in that data set that looks at gender-based violence. So the world systems of finance are looking at violence in countries, but not looking at gender-based violence as part of that violence in countries. But here we have this amazing data set that was not built for finance, it was built for governments that we can pair, right? We can say, hey, here's a data set that you can incorporate into your decision-making, back to that process definition. And if what we know from outcomes is that if, if data is incorporated, if this is seen as material, if it's seen as important in decision-making, it shifts the perception of the issue from, oh, that's too bad for women, but I don't really see what it has to do with finance. Mm -hmm. right? So one in three women experience intimate partners' sexual violence within their lifetime. One in three. That's material. We just haven't figured out all the ways in the same way that early on we were with climate finance. We just don't know all of the ways that we experience it. So what's important about this story, though, is coming back to... Here's an organization working, you know, 
um, here's, here's a data set, a research base, the kinds of things that Meta and so many other civil society organizations have developed over the years where they know what's actually going on, mm-hmm. how to translate that data to be able to figure out where is the very specific point, mm-hmm. and it's detailed, it's not affect the whole system, mm-hmm. it's country-level risk in political risk insurance. It has to get, this is back to the learning the system of finance. You have to be able to target things really precisely because otherwise you're sitting in a wash of, they don't care about me. They don't care about my data. We'll find out which part of the bowels of finance would care about your data. Mm -hmm. I think you're making an amazing case for not just including gender into uh, these analyses, but broadly social issues and there's like Absolutely. really like you're starting in a place where you're basically saying you're bringing into the financial world considerations that are bigger that should be factored mm-hmm. that ultimately do have an impact on on our financial investments and their return so if we can get investors to think like these things matter then we're going to have an impact now i wonder at, at global affairs ryan um you know you've got the feminist international assistance policy got a lot now new tools and repayable contributions that are going to be rolling out. Um, what does gender lens investing mean, you know, from a donor perspective? Sure. Um, well, I mean, I'm picking up on data and evidence, which um, for those of us who like don't need it because we know these things are, are facts and we accept, we accept these issues as, as, as just known, but oftentimes um, to make these, um, make it material that were just important, right? The translation of material is, is just the make it, making it important to the conversation is, is the need to have that data and that evidence base. Um, I've been chained to my desk for the last eight months working on the plumbing with these new programs. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump back in time to my previous job when I was a head of aid in Colombia to give an example of how um, Canadian civil society has been, has been helping to apply a gender lens um, to our investing with uh, official development assistance even before we knew of the term gender lens investing. Um, mm-hmm. Just quickly, we, when the feminist international assistance policy came out, all heads of aid around the world, Canadian heads of aid, um, started examining their program saying, okay, well, how do we, what do we need to recalibrate here? And, and working with our partners to see like, what can we do within the programs we currently have? We had two examples um, in Colombia with two great partners like Desjardins International and, and Soco de Vie. Uh, all of the partners went and did it, but just the ones that are popping ahead right now are, are, are these two. And they went and they looked at um, uh, Desjardins, obviously working in uh, access to financial services um, in, the, in the rural sector, um, and Soco de Vie working with uh, agricultural cooperatives. And both of them went away and looked at and spoke with the people were, that they were the beneficiaries, spoke with the systems around them, municipal government up to national with other members of local civil society to get why are women not accessing these products and services mm-hmm. like what is the perspective of women what is the perspective of all these institutions really really revealing stuff that seemed very straightforward when she looked at the actual evidence and the data but once we we're able to show that to the colombian institutions and say look look at this underserved segment of your population from a borrowing perspective in the in the in the agricultural um, uh, lending space or, or look at mm-hmm. look at how in in these cooperatives um, if you did focus more on on women how these cooperatives would actually grow faster and would be more sustainable so just a, this is a, a very simple and practical way and this is stuff we know how to do and we are doing but then we're able to take that information use it to to lobby for better in- interventions at that the national government level, but then also to formulate better and more innovative um, programs going forward. And now the next wave of things in Colombia will be looking at using these new tools that we have, but launching off with an informed um, evidence base that, that are hel- helping to like, these are just tools that I'm going to talk about later today with our new programs. They're just tools. And if you don't have that data, if you don't have that evidence, um, then the tools are completely useless. 
And that's something that a lot of Canadian um, partners know very, very well how to do, how to ask the right questions, how to convene, um, how, how, to, how, to, how, to, how to get the right information um, from people, and most importantly, how, how, to, how to translate that information into a digestible format for global affairs mm-hmm. and our heads of aid abroad to, to use. I do think um, it's interesting because I think the donor role in this is certainly unique in terms of the spaces we're entering. You know, you've, you've mentioned how partners and global affairs have worked together to sort of unpack where gender can deliver better outcomes or gender lens analysis can deliver better outcomes. But certainly, you know, for, for, for civil society, it doesn't necessarily know how to engage in investment spaces. The fact that global affairs is now deploying new tools and, and some are already out there, you know, mm-hmm. FinDev or uh, the Gender Equality Partnership that will get going. Um, but now you've got these repayable contributions and really you're in 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 a space where a principal donor can insist on metrics, on data that, you know, institutional investors, other ones, you know, traditional uh, private sector investors may not. Mm-hmm. You've got a really chance to, to sort of push the needle mm-hmm. there. Is it, it's, I hope that resonates, certainly the impression I've been getting. Um, uh, Joy, Jessica, any thoughts about sort of the role of donors, global affairs or, or not, uh, sort of in advancing gender lens investing? We're very bullish. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I'd say Criterion's worried broadly. I mean, it, as we look at the development of the field of gender lens investing, we're concerned that it's going to be kind of reduced to women on boards and women-led businesses. And as kind of, and it's not that those are not incredibly important things. They're just not the only experience of gender on the planet. Mm-hmm. And they won't necessarily get us to gender equality, mm-hmm. right? And so it, you could have, we could have all women on all boards, that's not going to get us. Something else would have needed to happen. Um, and, and so I'm really excited. The reason I spend so much time in Canada is, is because of the feminist international assistance policy and the possibility that a policy statement, and I think this is where Canada and, and um, has, has really been signaling, right? A lot of the impact that a donor organization can have, a donor agency can signal broadly, this is what we're interested in. And a tick box in Appendix C isn't enough. Now, obviously, the next thing that Ryan's working on with, with, with everybody else is what then, if not a tick box in Appendix C, yeah. And that's where I, I think a lot of donor agencies are leaning in to say, how do we help build the field of gender lens investing? How do we strengthen? And, and I think the DFI, the donor development finance institutions are also doing this. There's a broad sense of we need a stronger field. We need more capacity for funds to be built out. We need more capacity to sort of push the needle on what's possible, whether that's how gender integrates into climate finance or all of these different places, and donors signaling that. And then I think they are providing support to help that grow. Um, and, and I think that's an incredibly important role because here's a moment where gender lens investing, because of private sector forces, is growing, and the governments can actually step in and just push this inflection point to say the private sector is already doing gender lens investing. Governments didn't start this, mm-hmm. but you can push it to make sure it lives out its full potential in terms of gender equality outcomes. Mm-hmm. So I would just uh, add that Canada can lead this transformation, right? So at the end, it's about understanding this the spectrum with the different stakeholders and how we can make the connections, speak the same language, and having everybody on the table, so with the same goal. 
Absolutely. So it's about expanding impact, really. Taking going for civil society that's listening to us, I think many have the reflexes already, have been working with a gender approach to their programming across the globe, regardless of what sort of programming they're in from health to education or or you know, smallholding farmers, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's clearly a lot of expansion in the potential of impact as you're sort of presenting it here. Um, and certainly room for civil society to engage further as policy is developed, as ambitions are formulated at, at political levels, but also as donors get more sophisticated in terms of the tools that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to thank you very much for your insights and uh, thank, thank you for spending some time with us on Development Unplugged. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for that third and last episode in our mini-series of Development Unplugged talking about innovative development financing. Today we spoke about gender lens investing and what it means for global affairs, Canada, and also for your programming. If you haven't heard the first two episodes, you can find them on our website at ccic.ca, a first episode looking at leveraging the private sector through innovative finance, and a second one looking at performance-based financing and what it means for nonprofits. Thank you for listening.